Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Caritha Mitchell is an intellectual firebrand and one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. She's professor of English at Ohio State University and the author of two books, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance and Citizenship, and From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Among much else in our far-reaching conversation, we discuss why she pursued and expanded upon a connection between the lynching of Black people post-emancipation and anti-LGBTQ violence now. The ways white people reaffirm their dominance with what she calls, quote, know-your-place aggression, how black women have continually redefined success and citizenship in America, and why it can feel so utterly satisfying to point out white mediocrity. As she says, we've been surrounded by whiteness our entire lives, and we have not been surrounded by excellence. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Caritha Mitchell. Karitha, thank you so much for making time for me and for Busy Being Black listeners. Thank you. I love the podcast and it is an honor to join you. Thank you. Um, so as you know, I like to start all of my conversations with the same question. How's your heart? My heart is quite well today, especially. Um, I really have spent the pandemic with lots of reminders that not only am I really fortunate, but also that so many of the choices I've made in my life, I would make again. So the pandemic just has had me thinking about how I would choose this neighborhood again. I would choose this house again. I would choose my partner again. So um, I really am dwelling in a space of gratitude. I think the other thing that your question has me thinking about is how grateful I am for what I did in March of 2020, right before the shelter in place orders went into effect here in the US, which was to meet my mom in Washington DC so that we could go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture and have that girls trip. Um, so just kind of like five days of being with my mom. And then we both went back to our respective cities watched for symptoms for 14 days, didn't have any. And I will tell you, Josh, that I have spent the rest of this time thanking God that I had that time with her um, before all of this went down. Um, so yeah, my heart, I'm just so full of gratitude. And how about you? You know, my heart is good. Um, 
I never I ask this I ask people this question all the time and really never know how to respond myself. But my heart is good. I think that I've been feeling in a bit of a creative slump recently. And so I'm trying to take my own advice. I, I said to someone in, in an interview somewhere that, you know, go find what sparks ignite something in you follow that and so I've been looking for that I mean the show gives it to me of course but I've been really kind of delving into um, my poetry practice a bit more and so I'm feeling good you know I was having a conversation with someone earlier about this pandemic experience that we've all had together and uh, you know, all of us have had different experiences, of course, but this kind of collective journey we've had over the past year and a half. And, and she was saying that she had kind of run herself into the ground. And speaking to my own experience, I asked her if it was a bit, it was a bit, if there was a bit of guilt in that, right? That those of us who were comfortable enough to shelter in place, who had work, um, who had time to reflect, if that drive for us to always be doing something and and being productive was a bit guilt-driven. Um, and it, it's so nice to hear um, this perspective in the same day, right? That there was moments for you of such, you know, profound gratitude. Yes, absolutely. Well, and I will say that I certainly have had the experience of being aware of just how fortunate I am. And I think that that has made me very deliberate around um, what people are calling mutual aid. Um, it has made me very deliberate about finding the places where I can um, participate in mutual aid, whether it's local or not. And so that has been a very consistent practice for me throughout the pandemic as well, because I started noticing like, oh, all of the money that I used to spend going out to eat and taking former students out to eat, I can funnel that money to this, you know, um, queer of color collective in North Carolina, I can funnel, you know, so I think that that has been another kind of deliberate practice that has allowed me to do something with those feelings of guilt. And is there a contemplative or meditative practice that you have to engage your gratitude? I mean, how, how do you get into that space when it seems like the world is falling down around all of us? Um, how do you get into a space of gratitude? <sighs> You know, I think that it's an example of what I always say, which is whatever you practice, you get better at. <laughs> so if like literally whatever it is, like if what you practice is making a decision and then second guessing that decision, you'll get better at second guessing your decisions. So um, I just am very deliberate about practicing it. And so it has become very much a habit. I think the other thing that has brought it kind of center stage for me is just watching the way, I'll give you an example. I have noticed in conversations with different people that some people's experience has very much been about how um, when you talk to them, they can tell you all of the horrible things that are happening to people around them relative to the pandemic. And what I started noticing in some examples was that these were people who themselves were relatively untouched. They had that kind of position of being able to work from home and all of those things. They were relatively untouched, but they felt like there was something important about dwelling in the space of 
um, sadness around things that were happening to people they knew. And as I watched that, what it made me aware of for myself is that my mode is to basically operate in this way. That the way that I show that I'm grateful for things is to really enjoy them. And so my mode is not to leave a space only for saying I acknowledge the pain around me, but to also deliberately make space for saying there's pain around me and I cannot believe that I'm escaping some of that pain, but let me fully enjoy that um, situation. And that is the way that I express my gratitude for it. So, you know, people may look at that in different ways. They may see it as some kind of selfish thing. But to me, it's a practice of actual gratitude to fully enjoy it so that when I'm doing something that is participating in that mutual aid, it comes from a space of gratitude and joy, not a space of guilt. I hope that makes sense. It makes so much sense. And that's a really wonderful way of explaining it as well, that that, that because I'm having this conversation increasingly. Again, I had it today. I've, I've had it over the past week about this, this consistent and persistent um, approach to Black life that is informed by Black trauma, mm -hmm. right? And that, you know, I'm a big fan of Kevin Kwashi and, and his sovereignty of quiet and this yes. idea that Blackness as it's constructed is anti-Black because we lose what he calls our wild and voluptuous interior lives. Yes. And you're speaking to your own interiority here, right? That within mm -hmm. you, there is um, a wonderful, wild, tender, grateful, joyous woman who deserves that space to not only acknowledge, but also enjoy. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to recognize that we can do the exact same thing and end up being depleted or replenished by it. And the difference is the energy with which you do it. And so when we do things out of obligation and guilt, it isn't replenishing. But if we can find a way to do it from a space of joy and gratitude, right? So I think part of what I should make explicit too is my deliberate practice is always asking myself, why am I doing this? And do I like my reasons? And that is a very deliberate practice that I engage in that allows me to, as I say, do whatever it is I choose to do from a space that ends up replenishing me rather than depleting me. Why am I doing this? And do I like my reasons? Yeah, because the thing that- <laughs> I felt that. <laughs> and the thing that's glorious about it is like, they don't have to, you don't have to like your reasons because it's like moral or something like that. It's like, but do I like the reason? Because if I like the reason, then it's all good. Even if the only reason I like it is because it feels good, then I like my reason. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have to be like highfalutin and moral, but just check, do I like my reason for this? So I think I first became aware of your work, your, your prodigious body of scholarship and thought um, through Love in Action, an essay you wrote in Callaloo about the parallels between um, lynching at the turn of the century and anti-LGBTQ violence now. Um, and I have to say, I bristled at that title, right? I got my, my, I could feel my back get up. Um, 
but I imagine you got that from a lot of uh, Black people, right? That when you tried to make <laughs> the connection between lynching and anti-LGBTQ violence. Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> that essay, I will tell you, changed who I am in the world. So the way that that essay came about is that when my first book, Living with Lynching, came out in, I think, October of 2011, that next month I was giving a talk about the book at a Black cultural center not far from where I live in Columbus, Ohio. And during the Q&A, a Black man said, um, you know, really enjoyed this presentation, but I just wonder, do you realize that what you're talking about is happening today? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, the mutilation is happening to gay people right now. That level of violence and mutilation is happening right now. And I said, I don't know that, but I'm willing to learn from you about that. And so he proceeded to send me newspaper article after newspaper article over a series of weeks after that. Fast forward, and I was invited by the National Underground Railroad Museum to give a talk to public school educators about bullying. And I turned them down and I said, I don't work on bullying. Like, why are you trying to get me to do this? No, thank you. <laughs> and they wouldn't take no for an answer. It was the most bizarre thing. Like, somehow they even had my cell phone number and reached out. It was it was really, really strange. And so because they were so persistent in this odd way, I thought, okay, this is a message from the universe. Maybe I need to pay attention. And so I finally thought, well, bullying is often spoken of in schools around LGBTQ issues. Maybe this is a moment for me to see if I agree with that man during the Q&A, his name is Kevin Tyler. Maybe I should see if I agree with him that the violence that I was speaking about in living with lynching is similar to the violence that's happening to LGBTQ communities today. Maybe I need to take that seriously. So that began my journey of looking through those newspaper articles he sent me much more seriously in preparing for this presentation at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Museum. I'm sure I'm messing up the name of that. But I gave that talk. And by the time I gave that talk, I was convinced that he was right. And so then it took me another couple years and I, you know, wrote it as a full fledged 30 page article that you're talking about. But to your point. <laughs> Um, people definitely felt like, Black people definitely felt like there was some kind of lessening, there was danger of lessening um, what happened in the civil rights movement and against Black people in somehow putting on the same plane um, with LGBTQ, anti-LGBTQ violence. And I think part of what happened for me and why I say that that changed who I am as a scholar and as a citizen, Josh, is that I found myself asking more people than ever to read that essay for me before I published it. And time and time again, people didn't do that or didn't give me the feedback even if they read it. And it made me 
come to a place of real clarity for myself. It was like, okay, Caritha, if you're going to do this, you better be clear yourself about the arguments that you're making and why they're important for you to make. And so one way that I'll articulate why it was important for me to make the arguments I make is that first of all, it's about understanding that anytime you try to divide so-called civil rights movement from LGBTQ struggle, then you're erasing the fact that queer people of color exist. And that is a fundamental form of violence itself that we are all encouraged to participate in. And because I want to understand violence, it is important for me to go right to the heart of that. And so part of what I mean when I say that it changed who I am is that it made me recognize that the most important function of violence, whether it is physical violence or discursive violence, the most important function of it is to draw lines around who belongs and who does not. And I recognize the power of that and the power of us not having the tools we need to mark the violence, right? There's so many ways in which what I'm tracing in the similarities between lynching and anti-LGBT violence, so much of what I'm tracing is the refusal to acknowledge them as a tax. It's important that we recognize that because then we know what we're actually up against. And also then we know what it is that makes us feel like we belong or don't belong and what it is that is built into our society that is actually about excluding certain people. So for me, it's all about me and mine have been excluded and I wanna equip us to know exactly how that is happening because it is violent. I think you're right that, you know, when I personally read anti-LGBTQ violence and lynching, when I read anti-LGBTQ violence, I, I pictured white people, which I think speaks to your point about the way that LGBTQ is read as white by so many of us, um, kind of um, by rote, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that this connection to lynching became very apparent and important throughout um, because, you know, if, if we think about the way that violence so much of society is built on an anti-Blackness. It must be true that the violence experienced by Black people at any point in history informs and helps shape a violence that other people experience now. Mm -hmm. And I think the perfect example of what you mean is the way that so often the best way for you to denigrate someone else is to somehow approximate them to Black people, whether it's in terms of how they speak or how they dress, like that is one of the best ways to insult someone. It's not so different from, you know, the way that you can insult someone by, by suggesting that they're somehow approximating uh, womanhood or femininity. So in that way, I, I think I see exactly what you're talking about. But I think the other thing you have me thinking about, Josh, is the way that part of what I'm trying to trace in seeing the similarities between lynching and anti-LGBT violence is really putting attention on what and who gets license to do all kinds of things, right? So it's not just who's excluded, but who's licensed to operate in whatever way they want to operate who gets the license to do that? And so to my mind, the way that, you know, even schools 
um, give license only to people who are considered straight or considered, you know, operating according to the gender expression that we expect, right? Those are the people who have license and anything they do against someone who doesn't conform in those ways is somehow okay. And so that's part of what I wanted us to recognize is the violence that's baked into who gets room to move however they want to move. Does your so are you saying then that who has license to punish is who the citizen is, right? That both lynching and anti-LGBTQ violence um, confirm or reify uh, the bounds of citizenship? Absolutely. Like part of what I wanted us to recognize is that if you are read as straight and you accuse someone who's not read as straight of something or you do something to them, that always the way that our most common words and deeds, our most common discourses and practices are already set up to justify you and give you license. And so I was invested in us recognizing that as part of the violence that is baked into how our cultures work, right? When it comes to Black people, if something racist is said in a Black person's uh, presence, everyone gets laser focused on how that Black person reacted. Were they dignified? Were they angry? Whatever. That becomes far more important than the actual racist thing that was said to them because everything is set up to make sure that the microscope is on them and um, that we're actually not looking at the um, aggression from white people because white people can't be held to a standard of, I don't know, decency. They should just be able to say, well, I didn't mean it that way, and it's supposed to disappear. And then you're the angry Black person if you don't just let it disappear. So I wanted us to recognize, like, these are our most common words and deeds. These are our most common discourses and practices that shape the spaces we're in. Notice how much aggression is baked into the most common responses in these situations. And that will tell us who is considered belonging and who is not. And that helps us understand and the real function of violence, whether it's physical or discursive. And we saw this tone policing or aggression policing during the AIDS crisis, right? As white activists like ACT UP, uh, who led ACT UP, for example, and Larry Kramer were you know, yelling you know, at the top of their lungs, throwing ashes onto the White House lawn. And the focus was still on how those activists responded to the disregard of gay life instead of the actual structural disregard for gay life. Absolutely. And so part of what I'm invested in is when we notice that, when we're finally able to notice that which is trying to parade as just natural, right? Because all of us are taught to believe that, yes, those ACT UP activists are the aggressive ones, not the systems they're, they're dealing with. We're taught to ingest that as just the natural truth of things. And what I wanted us to see is that which is parading as natural truth as a manufactured lie that is built on aggression. Therefore, if we don't question it, we are part of the aggression. And so we can't sit back and think that we are not violent ourselves if we're not trying to disrupt that narrative that 
only looks at the ACT UP activists as aggressive. So I wanted us to really take on whatever our position is in society to take on the responsibility of actually pushing back against these dominant discourses and practices because there is violence baked into them. And anytime we go along with the dominant discourse and practice, we are participating in violence that is crushing someone in our midst as we feel comfortable. And I wanted us to feel very uncomfortable. And another parallel is that both lynching, as you've as you've made clear in your essay, another parallel is, between lynching and anti-LGBT violence is linked to success. Oh, Can you yeah. speak more on that? Oh my goodness, absolutely. It was so important to make that connection because so often those of us in marginalized groups are taught to believe that if we conform in certain ways, we can avoid violence. If we are successful according to mainstream standards, we can avoid violence. But over and over again, it was clear to me that it was your success that actually made you a target because everything in dominant discourse was set up to make sure that the standards would stay low for cisgender straight white men and having those standards stay low for them meant that they had license literally no matter what they did. And so once I saw that pattern, it was when I started to really understand, no, it's when that Latina professional is most successful that someone wants to say that she isn't in her proper place and that she doesn't belong, that she's an affirmative action hire. Like it's when you're most successful that someone wants to put you back in check. And it became clear to me that that was equally true um, whether we're looking at um, people of color as a group only or if we're looking at LGBTQ people only. One example of course becomes the way that the passionate <laughs> the passionate support for not only Donald Trump, but also Pence in the United States was because they had an anti-LGBTQ agenda. And how could that be if it weren't for the fact that um, more and more people were understanding just how much it didn't make sense to strip LGBTQ people of their rights. The fact that um, these activists were successful in getting more people to fight alongside of them to have greater equality, that success is what they wanted to put back in check. And so I wanted us to start to recognize the many ways that where, wherever you are in the political power structure, whether you're a politician like Pence or just an ordinary citizen voting for him, that there's an investment in the culture, in everything that the culture is teaching you that tells you to respond with aggression to any success by people who are in marginalized groups. And it's a it's almost it's a contempt for success, right? I saw a very funny tweet from you. It was, I think it was a quote from one of your, um, a piece that you wrote. I've been surrounded by white people all my life. I have not been surrounded by excellence. <laughs> yes. Yes. I say I that all I think I shared that everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's so important to recognize because I'll, I'll just to try to make this concrete because I feel like I'm talking too much in the air. You know, I think it was 2012, um, George Zimmerman 
let off uh, or we know for sure at that point that George Zimmerman is the person who killed Trayvon Martin. And at my university, we had some meetings and sit-ins that students had organized around these issues. And over and over again, I would hear students say things like, well, you know, all of those problems that you listed are true, but also I think that it's so important that students of color speak up in class because, you know, we need to represent and, and show that we belong and so on. And that was absolutely heartbreaking to me because what I wanted students to understand is that um, this I'm sorry, the example that I'm thinking of is someone spray painted long live Zimmerman on the Black Student Union at the university. And so these meetings were in response to that. And when students were saying that students of color needed to speak up more in class, and that is part of why this is happening, my heart broke because I needed them to understand that it wasn't that you weren't doing something right. It was that you were doing everything right, that you actually believed that you had earned your space here at the university and someone wanted to say, no, no, you shouldn't feel comfortable. You shouldn't feel like you belong. Policing those boundaries of who belongs is what all forms of aggression based on identity are all about. And so, again, linked to the point you're making, once you understand that, <laughs> then you start to see how it is the investment in making sure that that white people don't have to hold themselves to standards, that they can just be assumed to be good and decent regardless of what they do or don't do. It's the investment in that that actually makes it so important to put marginalized groups in their so-called proper place. I don't want you to actually recognize how much you more than earned your spot here. And you call this know your place aggression. Absolutely. I need you to know your place. The moment that you start feeling like you belong, I need to pull out something to remind you that you don't belong. I've had that experience so many times in my life and I internalized it, mm -hmm. right? Like I think many people do that, you know, sometimes you do something wrong and, you know, you're, you feel the aggression and sometimes an attack against us is precisely as you're saying, because you're doing something right. But then, you know, in my own experiences, I felt like maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe they're right. And that is, that's how insidious this is, right? That when it is baked into dominant culture, it's designed to make sure that we're always get second guessing ourselves. And I think that this is the reason it was so important for me to speak in terms of self-care. So I have an article called um, Identifying White Mediocrity and Know Your Place Aggression, a Form of Self-Care. And I put it in those terms precisely because of the phenomenon that you're describing. I think that on purpose, looking around our surroundings and seeing how much, wait a second, if that person weren't white, just based on their job performance, would they be in that position? Probably not. Because if they were a person of color, they have to be excellent and put white people at ease. So very often, if you look around, you can say, oh no, that person is only in that position because they are white. Doing that on purpose regularly is a form of self-care that allows us to not internalize internalize the BS, Josh. <laughs> and I want us to do that on purpose as a practice. Um, and then by the same token, that recognition of how much, you know, I've seen it a million times. 
someone white does something, it's reason for celebration. I do it, all of a sudden it doesn't mean comment, <laughs> right? And it's like, if we recognize that these are attempts to put you back in your proper place, then it allows us not to internalize whether we get recognition or not from those outside forces. And the only other thing I wanna say here is, again, my emphasis always is dominant discourse and practice, the most common words and deeds. They don't have to do it on purpose or consciously. It's just how our um, cultures are shaped through the most common discourses and practices. The most common response to a successful person from a marginalized group is to somehow put them back in their so-called proper place. It just comes because that's what everyone is taught to do. Busy Being Black will return in just a moment. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. Today, I'm in conversation with Caritha Mitchell. Her latest book, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African American Culture, analyzes canonical texts by and about African American women to lay bare the hostility these women face as they invest in traditional domesticity. Instead of the respectability and safety granted white homemakers, Black women endure pejorative labels, racist governmental policies, attacks on their citizenship, and aggression meant to keep them, quote, in their place. And am I right in understanding that uh, know your place aggression shows up on an individual interpersonal level, but it's also a collective behavior and response. If we think about uh, your example in your most recent book, From Slave Cabins to the White House, uh, your example of Michelle Obama, right? That there was a, um, a collective know your place aggression that was actually quite subtle, right? It wasn't, uh, sorry. Yeah. There was a collective response that was that was quite subtle alongside all the very kind of overt know your place aggression. I think the example you used was The Help, which is a movie you also detest. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I love the way that you're 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 breaking apart kind of the interpersonal level and the larger collective. Um, or cultural level, because that's exactly what I want us to be aware of is the way that it operates at all those levels and that we need to get better and better at recognizing it operating at several different levels. Um, so to my mind, paying attention to the most common discourses and practices in a culture allows us to see that it's both personal and not personal. So with Michelle Obama, here we have the first woman, black woman in the White House who isn't in a servant capacity. And that's the moment at which the help becomes this runaway success in 2009 as a book, in 2011 as a movie that no, as a nation, Americans should understand that if they're uncomfortable with her being woman of the house, that makes perfect sense because this was this better time, this earlier time when Black women were in their proper place as servants being led by young white women <laughs> to get their rights. It wouldn't have occurred to them to, to struggle for their rights without this young, you know... Uh... Plucky white woman. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's important for us to understand, like, 
as someone who didn't care at all about the help, I couldn't avoid talking about it. It was a, a, a cultural phenomenon. And so I want us to recognize how this, as you say, happens at both an interpersonal level, but also at a larger collective level, because it is literally the most common responses. Seeing this successful Black woman, the most common response is, how is she doing it wrong? Well, she's wearing shorts. How is she doing it wrong? It, I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's never ending. <laughs> um, and like you said, if we can recognize it at both levels, then we'll be more equipped not to internalize some of this stuff. You know, I don't know if you know this, but um, last summer, you know, um, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and these global protests, white people were asking for help, right? As it were, um, what can we do? How can we learn? This is my first term learning about racism and it's really bad. And the internet exploded with lists, watch these movies, read these books. The help in book form or movie form was not on any of those lists. And yet it was the number one film on Netflix globally. I cried. Like yeah. I was so frustrated yeah. that they did that. And it made me really, really question whether it was possible for white people to listen to us or whether it was always going to be a performative act right if it's always going to be some some performance of morality and then they get home and behind closed doors they watch the help yeah i will say that i was equally infuriated by that uh finding um and the only way that i can deal with my rage about that <laughs> um is to really do what I can to encourage white people to hold themselves and each other to higher standards and to recognize how miserably low the standards are that they are encouraged to hold themselves to, right? So in that example, it's like reading some anti-racist books is actually a pretty low standard, but look at how easy it was not even to meet that standard. And what I am hopeful about is that the conversations can be about what it is that you say you are. So in other words, if you believe you're a good and decent person, what is the measuring stick that you use for that? Is it simply because you exist as a white person? That's exactly what American culture is teaching you to do, that that's the end. I just exist as a white person. It's those people of color who need to prove whether they're good or decent. They're the ones that I'm scared of. They're the ones who need to prove that I shouldn't be scared of them, right? And so I just want, I, I, I am hopeful that the kind of work that I do in calling out white mediocrity and white villainy, that insistence will at least be the beginning of white people saying to themselves, if I say I'm good and decent, what are the standards I'm using? And how can I not just say that because I'm not as bad as Trump, I must be good and decent. How can I actually use standards of decency <laughs> to judge myself? And so Josh, it's one of those things where it's like, we can't change everything, but in my little sphere of influence that I can cultivate in terms of teaching and doing workshops, that's where I go. I go straight to how do we get white people to hold themselves and each other to some actual standards, not just I'm good and decent just because I exist, which is exactly what the culture tells them to do. 
you'll you'll see me i keep smiling when you say white mediocrity because it's pleasing to me and the ancestors <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's it's a, it's a it's a satisfying acknowledgement right that is almost healing in its satis in its satisfaction right that i'm not crazy that i am outperforming this person and let me just be really raw i think if a white person a white gay person was doing what i was doing with busy being black you know, it would be huge, mm -hmm. like huge, huge. Mm -hmm. And to your point about what you do versus what your white colleagues do, you know, there it, it sometimes bothers me. And so I think this white mediocrity is satisfying to me. It's it's it, it it's edifying. Yeah, and I'm so glad. And that's exactly why I do it, because I want us to not ingest all of the poison. It would be one thing, Josh, right, if um, if the dominant discourse wasn't not simply that white people are good and decent, but that we are evil. It would be one thing if 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 this low standard for white people didn't equate to denigrating everyone else, but that is how it functions. And so because it does so much violence, that's the reason why marking it feels healing is because when it's doing its normal thing, it's actually quite violent and denigrating. If it were neutral, that would be one thing, but that's never what whiteness has been. Yeah, it always needs, um, I'm learning more and more about this actually, there's a great deal of scholarship on, on how whiteness, in order for it to cohere as whiteness needs um, some kind of demon, black, brown, other to, to not be, as it were. Absolutely. And that to me is another reason why, right, the reason we're speaking in terms of whiteness is because it is a system and discourses and practices that confer value on some and take away value from others so that um, people who are read as white or identify as white can divest from whiteness and its violent project. And that is what I am working to encourage them to do, <laughs> which is to actually divest in ways that acknowledge not only my humanity, but their own. Um, yeah. Right. Because know your place aggression also impacts white people. If we think, and my concern, of course, isn't white people, but my concern like yours is, <laughs> is instead pointing out to white people how they shoot themselves in the foot, right? Because, you know, there's there's studies now that have been done around how in states with high minority populations or high black populations to be specific, um, there is less social welfare, welfare infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That lack of social welfare infrastructure impacts low income and working class white people too. But white people don't want social welfare if it will benefit black people. Absolutely. And that I think is a form of know your place aggression too, right? That we won't make the welfare of the state available to you, but they're also doing it to themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. It shows the violence baked in and it allows for only the elite to be okay. I, mm. I was doing a workshop <laughs> one time around these issues and the question on the table was, um, they said to me, well, how do you explain um, the hostility toward poor white people? And what they expected me to do is to speak in terms of, you know, what they assumed to be the hostility of people of color against working class white people. And I was like, no, the real hostility is those elite white people who can sleep at night despite the fact that they quite literally are allowing, you know, 
other groups of white people to die. And of course, this was during the time when Trump quite literally left his supporters out in the cold to get frostbite. And so I use that as an example that if we're buying into whiteness and the violence that it um, enables, then part of what you have to start recognizing is how elite white people can actually use it against everyone else in a way that is the real death dealing of this situation. Nothing to do with the Black people that you think you're um, punishing. And so what do we do then as Black people? So we take on Know Your Place Aggression as in your theory and, um, you know, we acknowledge it. What's the next step? Like, how do we living in an anti-Black world that is constantly trying to put us in our place? Like, what do we do now? Oh my goodness, what a powerful question, right? <laughs> and the kind of thing that I think about all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for me, it really has been about recognizing the incredible legacy of Black people who have always faced these kinds of ridiculous odds, right? By studying lynching, what I was studying was the way that people found ways to live with lynching. How did they support each other and themselves as they faced all of this violence? And what I found in writing Living With Lynching was what Black communities did to cope, which was to tell each other the truth about the fact that they weren't being targeted because they were criminals, but they were being targeted because they were successful and that the violence was trying to interrupt their march towards success and belonging. And so to my mind, when I am doing what I said at the beginning of our conversation, right? When I am being deliberate about tapping into joy and gratitude and Black community, I'm doing what I have studied Black communities doing throughout the history of being brutalized. And so to my mind, tapping into that ancestor practice <laughs> of living despite and getting out of the reaction mode, right? That's one of the things I'm really invested in. From Slave Cabins to the White House is all about how we're marching towards success and achievement and the violence is coming to try to interact us. It's not that we're reacting to the violence. Whenever we can get out of reaction mode, I think we are energized and empowered. And to my mind, that's what I most want to do and empower other people of color and other marginalized groups to do is to get out of reaction mode and to be energized and live deliberately and on purpose because the violence is coming whether I am sheepish or not. And so how do I live out loud? How do I do the work that I think I am meant to do? And part of that work is loving myself and my community fiercely. How do I make sure I still have energy for that? Part of how I do that is by making sure I'm not always reacting to the violence that's coming my way. Yeah, because one of the points that you make in the book from Slave Cabins to the White House is that Black people know the violence is coming and we move towards success anyway. 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 Right? It's not a, violence is not a deterrent to our need to, to succeed. And, and what you also make clear is that this is success in the most diverse and nuanced ways too, right? It's not necessarily um, the codified success of heteronormativity, but there's all types of success, uh, a success that we pursue uh, that means something to us. 
Absolutely, Josh. And thank you for that because, you know, part of what, you know, when I think about your question about what do we do, part of what hits me so hard is when I think about an example like Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a woman who is literally enslaved. And when you read her narrative, looking for success, not just protest, you see the many ways that she defines and redefines and redefines and redefines success so that she can keep pursuing it. And my thing is, if she can do that in enslavement, I better find ways to do that now. And so to your point, this idea of, you know, the smallest, I think that part of what I want us to do is recognize and celebrate even the smallest ways that we can claim success and claim joy and claim that sense of belonging, even the smallest ways. With Harriet Jacobs, you are literally in a country that is telling you that you're not even human. So the fact that you hold on to your belief and, and knowing that you are human and that you do have agency, that's a victory. It's a victory that white supremacy will not leave unchecked. It is telling you over and over again, no, you're just chattel. You're just a piece of property. So what I wanted us to do is have the tools we needed to recognize the many small victories that lead up to the bigger victories. And if we can do that, even in an example in enslavement with Harriet Jacobs, then how much more are we equipped to do that as we live through different iterations of the same death dealing regime mm. because we're not about, out of it <laughs> no 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 <laughs> um there's a lot of places i, I want to ask you about afro-pessimism but i feel like it might be unfair because i don't think that you're an afro-pessimist scholar or even within that um within that theory but i, I was struck by um because I'm only learning about Afro-pessimism very recently, and I find it to be a bit obtuse, and I'm, you know, trying to get my head around it, but um, I, I, what I have learned about Afro-pessimism is that it perhaps sets the terrain, right? It's probably not, um, it's probably not something, it probably helps explain the world we're navigating, and so I, I think quite towards the beginning of the book, um, uh, let me pull up my notes, I'm so sorry, one second. Um, you made a point um, towards the beginning of the book that it's time for a theory of cultural criticism that maintains clarity about the cause and effect relationship between the achievement between the achievement of marginalized communities and the violence of dominant culture, and that part of that emerges out of this kind of uh, misunderstanding. I think you're saying of uh, anti-blackness, right? That anti-blackness is not the effect but the cause. Yeah, in other words, so yeah, and thank you for going straight to that passage, because I think cause and effect relationship is what we so easily get away from. When I use the Harriet Jacobs example, part of what I'm talking about is just the fact that she knows she's a human is the reason why not only Dr. Flint, who owns her, quote unquote, but also the entire United States government acts against her in aggression to say, no, you're chattel, right? The federal government in the form of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 acts in aggression toward her knowledge that she is a human with agency and freedom. That is the 
way that we can understand that anti-blackness is not primary. The anti-blackness is not the thing that determines how Harriet Jacobs is operating. She is operating from her understanding that she is fully human, has agency, and should be free. Right. And here comes anti-blackness to put her back in her proper place. And to my mind, um, too much of what we very often put under the umbrella of Afro-pessimism is very, very masterful at mapping anti-blackness. But what I wanted to do was for us to stop acting as if anti-blackness is so primary that all black people do is respond to it. No, it's anti-blackness. I'm primary and it's responding to me. Aha. Uh -huh. Thank you. <laughs> Good. I knew there was a connection. So. <laughs> yeah. So that's the reason why my work kind of diverges from what people would call Afro-pessimism. And I talk about the way that, you know, there are certain scholars who don't necessarily claim the label, but the label is often put on them. And so part of what I suggested was, you know, Christina Sharp's brilliant work about life in the wake. And so basically what I said is, yes, um, we're in the wake of anti-blackness um, and that anti-blackness is the weather that we can't get a get away from. But I want us to recognize that the reason why anti-blackness became the weather that we can't get away from is because we've been so successful at holding on to our humanity and agency in a system that wanted to rip it away from us. Afro-pessimism has been percolating in my head. And so I really love this clarity that that re-centers Black people as originary, right? It Because it, part of my gripe with Afro-pessimism is that it also uh evacuates our poss our possibilities and potential for joy mm -hmm. right and i had a i have a real issue with that because i think yeah. that actually so much of what we do what we make in the world um is, is beautiful is joyful despite everything that happens to us exactly and you know some of that work gestures toward joy but its stakes are really not there. <laughs> yeah. Its stakes are really about just mapping the terrain. And I'm just like, yeah, that's the terrain, but why is it the terrain? It's because something is trying to put us in our so-called proper place. To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? It's such a beautiful question, Josh. Um, and I think that what I hope for is also what I work for, which is, um, you know, a world with more and more people who are invested in making every space they enter less hostile for more people. Caritha Mitchell is professor of English at Ohio State University. She's the author of two books, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance and Citizenship, and From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. I'm so
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.